Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to conclude our study of the eight verses of chapter 4, the first eight verses. And I've entitled this, Living Purity. Living Purity. Having a lifestyle that's characterized by purity. Uh, you could also say living purely. It doesn't matter how you say it. The concept is the same. That God wants us to be living examples of his purity. To be uh, effectively combating the onslaughts of sin. Now, just to explain that, I want to retell, uh, in fact, one of the joys of the ministry is the constant uh, uh, influx and reflux and deflux. You know, people just kind of come through, come rolling through. And, and I remember my years when I was with John MacArthur, I used to say, how come you repeat so much? I mean, if you listen to his tapes, you know, it's just, there's always about 20 minutes of repetition. He said, did you know every five years, he said, it's a completely new crowd? And he said, so if you look at, at the number of people we have, he says there's probably about a couple hundred every week that are new over a five-year period. He says, so I have to repeat myself. Well, I don't have that problem. I don't repeat that much, but I will repeat this. Because I want to share with you a concept about how important this living purity is. If you look at verse 13 of chapter 3, just before the first verse of chapter 4 we're going to start with, I want to tell you the story that goes with this verse. It says, so that he may establish your hearts, this is 1 Thessalonians 3.13, unblameable in holiness. Now, now that's an interesting word. And, and for a long time I, I wondered... And, and studied and thought, what was it that these people were doing? Because he says that, that God is going to establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at Christ's coming. Now, what does it mean when Jesus comes to be unblameable before him? Does it mean you never sin? Well, that can't mean that because Christians still sin. Does it mean that, that you're superior and, and that nobody can say that, that you fail or, or, or whatever? What does it mean when it says in verse 13 that these people, when Christ came, that they were going to be sticking out as unblameable? That's the first thought. The second thought is, why did this word mean so much to these people? The, the word, the Greek word behind unblameable is a one little word. It means or the sound of it is amemtas. And it was so important to these people that when they died, they had that word written on their gravestones. You say, how do you know that? Well, the French excavated this city of Thessalonica at the turn of the century. And they excavated all of Thessalonica. It's a beautiful city, Saloniki, today. But the ancient part is still there. And it was under a mound, and the French archaeologists dug down, and they found all the normal parts, the Agora and the, the Cardo Maximus, the north-south road, and the Ducademus, the east-west road. And then they started mapping out the city. And they came to the cemetery. And part of it was the normal necropolis, which is the way they used to bury the, in the ancient world, they had cities of the dead, necropoli. In fact, Cairo still has one of the largest necropolises of, of the ancient world. But as a part of that, there was a separate section that was totally different than the necropolis. And every one of the headstones that they found in the excavation had the same word written on them. And it's the word from this verse right here, verse 13. And inscribed in the, the white marble was the word amemtas. And the archaeologists, and, and I remember reading this report, they said, strangely enough, the Christian community was buried in a separate part of the necropolis, which is called a cemetery, because Christians believed that Jesus was coming back to get them, and so they were not living in a city of dead. They were in a cemetery, and a cemetery, koimeo, means to sleep. They were sleeping in the dust, waiting for Christ to come get them. And over their sleeping spot, where their headstone was, they wrote amemtas, or blameless. 
Now, how could they write that? Did they never sin? Thessalonica was a very bad city. If you remember a few months ago when we started this book, I told you that the people exercised with no clothes on. That's why gymnasiums, gymnas means naked. They did their races with no clothes on. They, they did their sports with, I mean, you think people don't dress and wear these funny things when they're out doing their aerobics? You ought to see them back then. They just didn't even wear the spandex. They wore nothing. And in that culture, homosexuality was rampant. All types of immorality was rampant. And these people were a part of that culture and they rose in Christ through a decadent culture. How were they blameless? Well, let me share with you three verses that will help you understand. Look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to show you what blameless living that we're going to map out tonight is all about. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It means that whenever you come in contact with sin, you do something about it. And what you do about it is not wallow in it, not relish it, not pursue it, and not enhance the reptilian nature of sin. Remember, sin grows the longer that you let it. Just like reptiles, every year that they live, they get bigger. That's why dinosaurs were so big. They lived a long time. That's why the crocodiles and the alligators were so big in the, when the explorers first came to this country. And that's why they're so small today, because the longer you let those reptiles live, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. They have an endless ability to get bigger. So does sin. But look at verse 1 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having these promises, of course, that's chapter 6 and, and the previous uh, 5 and 6 of Corinthians, of 2 Corinthians. But having these promises, beloved, here's what a blameless person does. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting or maturing or, or cultivating holiness in the fear of God. What does a person that's blameless before Christ at his coming do? He doesn't live in an, an ethereal world of saying, I don't sin. That's ridiculous. Rather, he deals with sin as it comes, and he takes the promises of God and cleanses himself from every defilement of the flesh, that's, that's the, the carnal, fleshly, lustful things, and of the spirit. Those are kind of the subtle, quiet, proud uh, uh, sins that are, that are secret, you know, pride and, and envy and, and class uh, envy and all that kind of stuff. But any defilement is dealt with by the cleansing blood of Christ, and that person is perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, keep turning to Titus, that's past the Thessalonian epistles, to Titus chapter 2, because the Apostle Paul brings up the same idea again in Titus chapter 2, in verse 11. And he says that God's grace, Titus 2.11, has appeared and brings salvation that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. How? Looking for the blessed hope. So what does a blameless person do? A blameless person denies ungodliness and, and learns to say no to it. And you know, the more you say no, the more you strengthen holiness in your life. And the person who's living a defeated life is someone that, that has just let sin kind of spring upon them as a, as a wild beast, and they're just letting it gnaw at them. But God says that's not the way to live the Christian life. The way to live the Christian life is to say no to sin. And he said that every time we say no, the Lord Jesus Christ says he'll make a way of escape. One more. Look at James, chapter 1, verse 21. Because I want you to see that all the way through the scriptures, it's saying the same thing. We can be blameless if we deal with sin as we walk through this life and don't let it grow and take over in our lives. It's kind of like pulling the weeds in your flower bed or like edging or like squirting um, Roundup on, on poison ivy. You just keep working at it and see it lessening in your life. 
But look at James 1.21. Therefore, putting... Now remember, James is the very first New Testament epistle. This is the first New Testament letter that was written. And James was a pastor of the church in Jerusalem, our Lord's brother. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You see, there is a partnership in this salvation. God initiates salvation, and then we respond to the implanted word. And let the planted word help us to put aside filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, our flesh that we're... we're, uh, in salvation, we get a brand new heart, but it's still in our body of flesh, and we still have all the lust of the flesh that we have to deal with. And we humbly let the Word of God be implanted in us, which saves us from yielding to sin. You see, someone who yields to sin and never resists it and never fights back is demonstrating, the Word of God says, that they've never been saved. See, a Christian cannot persist in sin, and that takes us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let me just walk through this with you all the way through the passage, because I want you to see what we've already covered before we finish it off tonight. What we've already covered is starting in verse 1. What the Apostle Paul says there, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, is we need to decide we're going to please God. I mean, it starts right up here in our minds when we decide we're going to please God with the way we live. And I know that that most of us have come to that point in our life where we've made that decision. Listen to what Paul says. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you receive from us instruction how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you actually do walk. He says you've made that decision to please God. All you should do is excel still more in it. Have you made the decision to please God? Have you made the decision that that your life, that the way that you live from Monday morning at 8 o'clock until Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock, that part of your life is going to please God? And the way you live from after you get off work at 5 o'clock until you get there the next day, that part of your life is going to please God? And the way you live on the weekend, on Friday night, and all day Saturday, and the way you live on Sunday, is going to please God? Have you decided that all of your life belongs to Him and is under His scrutiny? He says, I know you've decided that. Just excel in it still more. Number one, decide to please God by your conduct. Verse two, he said, plan to live according to God's commandments. And we covered before that John 14 says we we obey God's commandments, not because we're afraid of them, but because we love him. Look at verse two. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He says, you know that Christians are not under the law, but rather they have God's law written on their heart. Christians are not those who are trying to keep the law to please God, but they are ones who, because they love God, are keeping the law from their heart, from the inside out. And that they look at God's word as his commandments that show that they want to please him. So number one, decide to please God by your conduct. Number two, plan to live according to God's commands. And I've told you the story many times about that great missionary pioneer, uh, C.T. Studd who served uh, in China, then in India, and then the last 20-some years of his life in, in, with the pygmies in Africa. And the one thing he did is every morning he got up at 3.30 in the morning and he read the Bible for an hour by firelight as he, stood or, or as he sat near the campfire. And he would take a pen and he would mark off every one of the commands of God that he could find in his Bible. And if he was consciously obeying that, he would put an okay by it and he'd leave check marks by the rest because he says, I want to keep his commands because I love him. At that man's death, his funeral is attended by over 20,000 black, 
head-hunting, cannibalistic pygmies that he had led to Christ in the jungles of the Congo. Now, how did he accomplish that when other missionaries were, were failures? It's because his heart, with all of his heart, he had planned to live according to God's word, and God could powerfully work through him because he had yielded. Look at verse 3. Uh, God says, thirdly, we need to follow his will. And this is what it says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the most often repeated sin in the Bible is sexual sin. It's, it's the most easy to slip into as human beings because the driving force of our lives is, is our survival. But next to that, the second most powerful force is our self-pleasure. And the most easy method of self-pleasure is in the sexual realm. And if the body is not disciplined by the Holy Spirit, it just goes naturally into those realms. And that's why I don't really think that demons are very active in, in the pornography industry or in the, the, the evil, vile, red light districts because that is just human nature. It goes that way apart from the inhibiting power of God's spirit. I think the demons are far more active in religious deception and things like that. That's where they're at work. Our, our fallen nature heads the other way. But this is what the apostle said. He says, you people who grew up exercising with no clothes on, you people who grew up uh, living like animals uh, and just doing whatever you wanted, this is God's will. Sanctification, that means, sanctification means to be set apart to God's holiness, set apart for his use. It means saying that this body belongs to him. I've been bought with a price, this is yours, and nothing else can be done with this body but pleasing you. He says, that's God's will. Verse 3, follow God's will. Our calling is to do God's will. God's will is that we have purity, that we are living examples of his purity. And that takes many forms. I mean, it, 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 God's will is our sanctification and our purity. It's not only that we don't involve ourselves in immoral things, but also that we do not lead other people into immorality. There are some people, they would never think of doing anything immoral, except that their, their whole conduct and demeanor is provocative, and it leads others into immorality. He says both the active and the passive participant are committed to sexual purity, and that's God's will, sanctification. Now, verse 4 he said, we also should pursue personal holiness. Verse 4, look at that. Each of you should know how to possess, how to, to take over the reins of ownership of your own body in sanctification and honor. Pursue personal holiness. That's a commitment to personal holiness. And what he said is, and, and uh, I'll read to you 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he tells Timothy straight on, starting in verse 20, in a large house, 2 Timothy 2.20, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but there are wood and earthen vessels. Some are honorable and some are dishonorable. Therefore, 2 Timothy 2.21, if a person cleanses themselves from these things, he will be a vessel for honor. Now, what things? Well, abstaining from the wickedness of, of immorality and immoral things. Then, verse 21 says, if, if we are a vessel for honor, we will be useful to the master and prepared for any good work. Now, here's the bottom line. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lust. I'll tell you a little secret. In the realm of lust, lust never lessens and purity never gets easier. I have to say, one of the greatest blessings in my life was to spend five years working with senior citizens 
When Bonnie and I started out in ministry at Grace Community Church, the first assignment I had there was to work with their 864 people that were over 65 years of age. I used to have one die every week. I mean, they just died one a week. It's just like clockwork. Out of 800 people, they just die like that. And I remember that one of my goals was to know as many of them as I could before I had to do their memorial service. And I spent a lot, and Bonnie used to go with me. We'd have them all to our house and just, just spend as much time with them, hear their testimony. But one thing I did is I talked to the men, and I said, to the ones I saw were living triumphantly, I said, how did you live triumphantly? He says, I made a decision, they told me, as a young person, that I would say no to lust because lust only gets bigger the older you get. And, and I talked to some of the others that were not living such victorious lives, and they said, you know what, my, my struggles with the temptations in the physical realm only increase the older I get. That's what Paul said. He said, flee youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness when you're young, because the, the flow and, and the desire of sin doesn't lessen, and it never gets easier to say no to sin. It only gets harder. And he says, do it when you're young. Say no to lust. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith. Pursue love and peace with those that call on the Lord from a pure heart. Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 4, make a personal commitment that you're going to pursue holiness yourself. That means in our culture, I wrote this down, that you have got to make a choice that that videos and magazines and movies and TVs and, and, and swimming pool times and everything else that points toward immoral things you'll say no to. And that there will be no mental or physical contact with things that lead to immorality. Why? Because it says in 1 Corinthians 6 that God bought us. He's the landowner and, and the, the one that owns our bodies. And he says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to give ourselves back to him regularly. He beseeches us to present ourselves back to him. How do we do that? Well, basically, I want to share with you, the scriptures say that it starts in the mind. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we have to take our thoughts captive. Colossians 3, 1 says we have to lock our affections upward and, and seek things that are above, not earthly. Ephesians 6.17 says we have to put on the helmet of salvation and stand with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to fight off the lusts that so often come our way. Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 2.22 that we should flee youthful lust. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.9 that we resist Satan and he'll flee from us. So basically God says that we have to make a personal commitment. We're going to pursue his holiness. Now this is new ground. Look at verse 5 of First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 5. He said this, that we should, and listen to verse 5, not live in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now what Paul does here is he contrasts us to the old life. God says it's normal for the unregenerate person to head downward into sin. He said that's abnormal for you now that you're in Christ. And basically what verse 5 says is we need to turn on our new operating system. Now think through what happened when you got saved. It says in uh, Ezekiel 36:26 that when God saved us, he puts a new heart inside of us, a brand new operating system. He says a new heart I'll give you and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll take away your old heart. So the center of our life used to be lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. God says, I've removed that as the operating force, and i put a new heart within you. And that new heart is a heart that seeks 
the things that are above. And so he says, what you need to do is start operating on the new operating system I've given you. Turn on the new computer. It's a contrast. Don't any longer, verse 5, don't live in lustful passions. What does that mean? It means you don't look at immodesty. It means you don't look at impurity. It means that you don't, don't have the items that, that tend to cause sin to come up in your life. If you're on a diet, you don't frequent places that serve the food that will get you off the diet. If you are someone that, that used to be an alcoholic, you don't have meetings at bars. If you're a person that, that is prone to lustful things, then you avoid at all costs things that produce lust. I mean, you have to make some radical choices. You have to change what you watch. In fact, it's better not to watch the movies and television. I mean, on, uh, Royce and I were, were on this flight, and, and the tamest movie that was offered on the flight was a PG-13 movie. I had to turn my movie and, and, and turn it off and fast forward because I can't watch what the 13-year-olds can watch. And, and yet there are people that are Christians that say, I can watch R-rated movies and they don't bother me. What you're telling me is that you're calloused and that the Spirit of God doesn't have the sensitivity in your life you should have. If, if, if what I saw in that airplane that I had to stop watching is what 13-year-olds watch, then they need to have a, you know, a, a PG-1 or something like that for one-year-olds. Maybe that's where I am because God says, don't let what the lustful passions of the Gentiles, don't let that be operative in your life. Now look at verse 6. He continues. He says this, a caution, verse 6, and that no one transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we told you before, we solemnly warn you. What he's saying is this. Paul says, watch out. Here's a word of caution. God will chasten those who break the rules. You see, we've had so much teaching nowadays on grace that we need a little bit of teaching on chastisement. I mean, I've seen all the books in the bookstore on grace now. I mean, great grace and grace living, grace is awakening and all this stuff. And what it's tending to do is people are lessening in their fear of sin because they're so aware of God's grace. Now, God's grace is great. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the grace of God because I'm a sinner forgiven and so are you. But God says, I want to caution you. He says, if you go beyond, if you transgress, and the word transgression means you go beyond the mark. If you go beyond, if you defraud your brother, what does defraud mean? It means when you start a desire that they can't in a holy way satisfy. Uh, he's talking about couples. He's talking about when one member of the couple starts desires that cannot be legitimately fulfilled. You've defrauded that person. When you cross that line, God says, I will chasten you. Specifically, what does he mean? Well, we need to accept the reality that some things are impossible to look at or read or to do without them causing us to veer off God's road, so we have to run from them. Secondly, we need to admit that certain places and situations lead to weakness and vulnerability, and we have to resist them. I mean, if you're dating, I would not be alone. I wouldn't be alone. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a rule of thumb. If someone's around, if someone can walk in, that it limits what's done. And that's what this is talking about. Protect your source of power by being cautious. Verse 6 says, if you go beyond God's limits, that he will 
chasten you. He will judge. We need to study the way God made us and learn to apply the power God has given us to run and resist and refuse any defilements. Specifically, and you might want to write these down, 1 Peter 2.11 says this, Abstain from fleshly lust. That's really straightforward. Just say no. Just say, I won't enter into that situation. I won't go into that location. I won't go into this. I won't, I won't persist in this activity because it vexes my soul. It makes me want to go into realms that God says are unlawful for me, that are unwholesome. I want to read to you what a great preacher wrote a generation ago, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a powerful expositor of God's Word. And this is what he says as he's preaching on 1 Peter 2. He says, There's not a single scripture... And I speak advisedly, he said, which tells me to take my sin, the particular thing that that gets me down, to God in prayer and ask God to deliver me from it, and then to trust in faith that he will. Did you know a lot of Christians do that? They have a besetting sin, whether it's in the moral realm, or if it's in substances of drinking, or, or drugs, or whatever, or if it's in maybe some dishonesty, or whatever, and they're saying, God, will you deliver me from that wicked habit, or will you deliver me from that addiction to that, please? No, no, God never says that. The teaching is often put like this. You must say to one who is constantly defeated by a particular sin, I think your only hope is to take it to Christ, and Christ will take it from you. That's not what the scripture says. In Ephesians 4.28, the scripture says to the one who is guilty of stealing, and to the one who sees something that they like and take it, what are they supposed to do? It says, stop stealing. Take the sin to Christ and ask him to deliver you? No. The Apostle Paul tells him, let him that stole stop stealing. That's what the Bible says. Stop doing it. And if it's fornication or adultery or lustful thoughts, stop doing it. Paul says, he does not say go pray and ask Christ to deliver you. No. Stop doing it. As becomes children of God. God says he delivers from temptation, not from the sin. The temptation... The unexpected time it comes in. But when we're facing the sin, God will not deliver us. He has already given us the grace to say no to that sin. And that's what the Christian life is all about. That's what mortifying our flesh is all about. We say no to sin. Not no to the temptation. God will give us the grace for that. And we can pray about that. That he'll deliver us from coming into the place of temptation. But if we are in the place of temptation, we don't pray for deliverance. We say no to sin. Why? Because 1 John 5 says that Christians can sin unto death. That means if they persist in sins, God will kill them. Revelation 2 says some are dead because they have not said no to sin. 1 Corinthians 5 says God will destroy our flesh if we persist in sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says we will be sick. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 says God will chasten us if we start anything we can't lawfully complete. Galatians 6-7 summarizes it most clearly. It says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow to your flesh, you will from your flesh reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will from the Spirit reap life eternal. Well, verse 6, Protect yourself. Protect ourselves. He gives a caution. Now quickly, look at verse 7. Paul continues, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. 
We need to treat God as holy. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. He has called us to sanctification. Look at verse 8. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of holiness. The purpose God saved us was unto holiness. It said in the verse that God himself is personally involved in making us holy. Don't treat God in an unholy way. Treat God holy. We do not reject God. It says here that he who rejects, verse 8, this, is not rejecting man. If you reject holy living, you're not rejecting Paul. You're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting what the Bible teaches. You're rejecting God who has given us the Holy Spirit. Literally, this means, if you translate it word for word, you treat God as one who can be disregarded. You know what? God doesn't want to be disregarded. God says, if you disregard me, I will respond with chastisement in your life. Now finally, verse 9, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for me to write to you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. You notice how Paul always comes back up after he goes in these heavy passages. And what he's saying is this. He says, you who in verse 1 are already doing this, just excel. He completes in verse 9 after this serious and, and very, very sobering statement. He says, don't reject this. Rather, love one another. Look at brothers and sisters in Christ as being so important that you will not defraud them. Look at them as so important that you will not lead them into temptation. Look at them as so important that you will love them so much that your life will be an example. And look at God as so important that you will treat him as the holy God he is because he has called us to holiness. And he said, it's my will that you be holy. I want you to live according to my commandments. I want you to please me by the way you conduct yourself. I want you to make a commitment to personal holiness. I want you to take the new mind I've given you and take that and say yes to me. And I want you to constantly protect your power source because I want you to know that God says it grieves my spirit that is holy when you persist in sin. Well, that's how Paul treated these people to the word of God. What did they learn from it? Well, when they died, they put on their gravestones. Paul, we heard what you said. You asked us to live unblameable in holiness. We did it. We weren't perfect. We failed. We sinned. But we dealt with our sin on the spot. We said no to sin when we faced it. And we asked your spirit to deliver us from temptation. Did you know that tonight... You can know as you go to sleep that you're living unblameable in holiness. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It doesn't mean that, that you're perfect, that, that, that we are above other people. What it means is this, that we have said to God that we are consciously going to take out of our lives the things that lead us into sin, that we're going to consciously direct our lives toward holiness, that we are going to realize that it's never going to be easier to say no to sin than it is today. It's going to be harder tomorrow. It means the next time you confront whatever your besetting sin is and whatever habit has a grip on you, that it'll never be easier to say no to it than it is today. How does it start? As I read to you before, 2 Corinthians 10.5, take your thoughts captive to Christ. That means say, God, my mind belongs to you. Colossians 3, lock your affections upward. 
It says, for we are dead and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We set our affections on things above. Say, God, your impression of me is more important than my physical desires and pleasures. It means we have to put on our helmet every day, Ephesians six seventeen, and wear it. It means we have to memorize the scripture and use it as a sword to fend off the, the desires of the evil one. And it finally means, if 2 Timothy 2.22, that when lust raises its head in our lives, we flee. When that lust, when that sin that so easily besets us is in front of us, we're like Joseph of old, and we say no, and we run from it. If we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. But when we face sin, we flee sin. That's what God says is a way that we live in purity in this wicked and adulterous generation in which we live. I hope we'll take to heart the wonderful words of the Apostle Paul as he challenges us to live purely. Let's bow and conclude this time. Dear Father, I ask you for your grace tonight upon all of us who you have called to live in this world. You've called us to live holy lives, and especially to these people who lived in in the wicked and fleshly Greco-Roman world. These were powerful words that transformed them, and it caused them to have lives that were committed to purity. And to their dying days, they had a testimony that, that they were saying no to sin, that they were going to flee lust, that they were going to seek and pursue heavenly things. Father, you want no less from us. And I know that there is a concerted effort among your people here to live holy lives. And so with the Apostle Paul, my prayer is that this congregation, that these saints would excel still more because they love one another and love you because we are yours We want to conduct ourselves, every young person and every adult, in a way that will exalt the holiness of Jesus Christ. And as the hymn writer said, may we be living for Jesus, lives that are pure, striving to please him in all that we do. And that's our heart's desire tonight. For Christ's sake, amen.